The business of culture, the culture of business, Wall Street, Hollywood, creatives, disruptors. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The pendulum has definitely swung back in the other direction. Everyone is tightening their belts across the board. Everyone's saying, okay, we're not just going to spend endlessly on these streaming services. We're going to have to find ways to generate other revenue. And Netflix, from its very beginning, back to even the naming of the company, Netflix was worried about 10, 20 years down the line. And they operated that way. And they institutionalized that. Netflix, HBO Max, Disney Plus, you name it. So many Hollywood streamers are suddenly pulling back after years of binging on tens and tens of billions of dollars of glossy content that it turns out consumers will only pay so much for. How will this all shake out? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. Shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Bloomberg correspondent Felix Gillette. He co-authored the new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. It dropped on November 1st. It was co-authored with John Koblen of the New York Times. How are you, sir? Terrific. Thanks for uh, having me on. Felix, this is a rare corporate page turner. I mean, a true amount of reporting. It struck at the perfect time where there's all this existential uh, angst about streaming, Mm -hmm. Disney's succession, Netflix. I call this episode the streaming winter. And I'm struck looking at this book. Actually, the thing that struck me the most is how much these guys were jury rigging it, let's say, 50 years ago when Mm -hmm. Time Inc., the magazine unit, the former cash cow of Time Warner, now called whatever Warner Brothers Discovery, was, was out venturing and trying something experimental in television. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, it was basically a period of time where Time Inc. was looking to diversify beyond magazines. And along comes this idea for a pay TV service, which was a crazy concept at the time, if you think about it. I mean, TV was something everybody got for free. And, you know, the idea was basically, well, there are pockets of the country where you know, because of mountains or, you know, distance from towers, people couldn't get good reception. So there's, you know, the whole cable era of television is just going in and people are stringing wires around. And, you know, along comes this idea for what if we created a channel, a network that would actually provide original programming of some sort. And the basic idea at the time was, well, let's start with Hollywood movies, you know, that people could watch in their homes. This was before the VCR. We're talking about wow. the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the concept is, yeah, you know, you pay a couple dollars a month and we'll send you, you know, uh, movies, newish Hollywood movies, and you can watch them in your home without commercials. And at that point, it was a pretty appealing idea, but it was unclear initially how Time Inc. would get the programming into people's homes. There was no real easy way at that point because it was basically this giant patchwork of nascent cable operators. But the satellite dish really changed that. 
Yeah, the satellite dish was a huge leap forward. I mean, first couple of years, HBO basically was going nowhere. Then 1975, they basically decided, oh, you know, there's this new technology of satellites that can beam video programming around the country. Uh, if we lease space on that satellite, then we could actually beam the HBO programming out you know, across the country. Anyone could put up a small satellite receiver, catch our signal, redirect it to their customers. Again, kind of an experimental idea. Nobody was doing it at the time. Time Inc. board took a look at it and said, well, if we don't do this, the whole thing's basically going to shut down anyways. So let's try and do the satellite. And as it turned out, that was the great leap forward. And HBO tested the technology for the first time with this Ali Frazier fight uh, that was taking place around the world in the Philippines. And it turned out to be, you know, the Thriller Manila was one of the classic boxing matches of the era. They were, the technology worked. They were able to, you know, send the signal around the planet, but redirect it across the country. And from there, you know, seeing how that technology worked, it was just like the great leap forward. HBO became the first satellite distributed national network. All these other cable networks kind of raced to copycat the technologies. And you pretty quickly after that started getting TBS, you got ESPN, BET, MTV, all these other networks that came to life using the same mechanism. But HBO was the first. Here's what I don't understand. And I a lot of us kind of came of age journalistically with the AOL Time Warner merger at the turn of the yep. century, which was, I mean, it's now synonymous with catastrophic merger. We could also talk about the AT&T Warner mm -hmm. Brothers merger. There's something, you know, they say there's something about Mary, there's something about HBO and everybody going <laughs> after this asset. But yeah. I thought that 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 structure of that company was kind of like holy grail. If you're at the turn of the century, you look at Time Warner, it's yep. that a magazine division was still making money, had a box office business, had a DVD business, had a cable business, Time Warner Cable, you and I in Manhattan. I mean, mm -hmm. you own the pipes and you own the distribution. You had AOL, you had Roadrunner, which was a broadband play. You had content on TV, you had Turner Sports. It made so much sense. And on top of that, you know, you're at the nascency of The Sopranos, Right, yep. Sex in the City is in its prime. You're getting all these revenues, and you have a premium, the premium content channel on all of premium yep. cable. I mean, this is before Netflix uh, truly decided to innovate into that. Was still sending out DVDs. So, what went wrong with that? I can't understand it. Even reading your book, uh, you know, I think part of it was this huge culture clash. You know, the AOL team, these cyber visionaries from Virginia, came in. And they didn't have a lot of experience in the content entertainment field. They had a huge culture clash with the Time Warner executives. And also, you know, at some basic level, the technology that was supposed to be so cutting edge and was supposed to catapult. It was clunky. I remember it going was to terrible. Chelsea to yeah. return those cable boxes. <laughs> and, and, it was really bad. And the two didn't talk, really. I mean... The Time Warner cable people didn't talk to the AOL people. There was, you know, there was this divide. It was still balkanized. And all I yeah. wanted when I lived in Manhattan was to be an early cord cutter. We were using Wi-Fi. We were doing these things. I'm ready for an HBO Go. I'm ready for a video on demand. Right. And they just didn't want to offer it to me. And and they yeah. actually were in a rush to break up this company under Jeff Bukes, who started off as the head of HBO, right? Yep. And then became CEO, yeah. CEO of Time Warner. He sloughed off all of these other units throughout Felix 
Netflix, and your book covers this through line, is HBO's crushing it in the early aughts. Uh, and from a buzz perspective, some of the shows were janky in the 90s. I mean, they were mm-hmm. not meant to look high production value. Yeah. And then Sopranos. I mean, the scenes on the golf course with the smokestacks in the mm-hmm. background. I mean, yep. if you look at Succession filmed in the Mediterranean, clearly, clearly Game of Thrones. I mean, that's not cheap to make. And I even no. even someone like me, like Deadwood, that was a very niche thing that I caught in the middle part of uh, the last decade that was great. Yeah. Not many people watched it, but it felt really premium. So even while the parent company is figuring out a way to get out of this catastrophic merger, HBO keeps delivering. Yeah. HBO had an incredible run during the worst corporate merger of all time. And I think the reason for that is you have to go back a couple years earlier to the mid-90s. And there was a huge shift, probably the most important shift in HBO's history took place in the mid-90s. Before that, when you go back to the original idea of HBO, it was the home box office. So it was basically like any programming we would put on that previously you'd have to go out into the world and buy a ticket for. So sporting events like boxing, movie, a ticket to the movie theater, you know, big stand-up performances by comedians, musical concerts, these big one-off events. And it was pretty popular. They had a lot of great, you know, boxing, Mike Tyson in the 80s, HBO really did great with. But at at some point in the 90s, they realized, and, you know, they realized, well, all these one-off events are great and people love them. But it doesn't really keep people coming back week to week to week. And if we want to do that, we're going to have to start making serialized programming. And yes, HBO had kind of dipped their toes in making TV shows over the years. But there was always a lot of hesitancy because the broadcast networks gave away TV for free and they were so dominant. And there was a thought that, well, we can't really compete with them. So let's not make serialized TV programming. But finally, in the mid-90s, they said, you know what, we're going to really do this in a serious way. And when they did that, you know, I think part of it was thinking, well, what, how would we do it differently than the broadcast networks? What could be our comparative advantage? And I think the real insight was, well, we can't pay TV creators as much money. We can't give them as quite a big of an audience as broadcast television, but we can give them creative freedom that they've never had before. You know, and if you bring your show to HBO, you're not going to have, you know, commercial sponsors looking over your shoulder, telling you to avoid controversial topics. You're not going to have these endless notes from TV executives saying, hey, make the characters I mean, yeah, more likable. Yeah, the way that they gave David Chase in The Sopranos, yeah. which was kind of risible when I first saw ads for this, what was it, in 98 or 99, that it was in productions like, oh, okay, you guys are going to try to serialize a Goodfellas type thing. Right, Or continue right. with a lot of the characters. And, and clearly it made television history. Or uh, David, yeah. David Milch with Deadwood. Mm-hmm. I mean, very high-minded... Um, Cerebral and he'd done content. broadcast television. He came from NYPD Blue. David Chase had done Rockford Files and Northern Exposure. You know, all of these were veterans. Darren Starr, who created Sex in the City, he had done Melrose Place and 90210. So these were all veterans of broadcast television. And they came to HBO really to have that creative freedom. And that ended up kind of revolutionizing things. And you're right, they had this amazing run right out of the gate where you get Sex and the City, uh, Sopranos, Deadwood, The Wire, uh, Six Feet Under, all, I mean, all gosh, these amazing shows. All these amazing shows. And then even Succession that found its groove during the disastrous AT&T Warner Brothers merger. Um, yeah. You know, I'm I'm struck, but in your book, you do delineate that there were cash streams. There were cash cows in the past. I did not appreciate the extent to which the DVD business cross-subsidized this kind of 
innovative leap of faith. And yep. back in the day, yeah, you wanted to watch season one of The Sopranos. You had to go and buy the DVD set. Yeah, and that thing was like a hundred dollars, and you know it cost HBO basically nothing to make, and those were seen as collector items, and it was just a huge additional revenue stream, pure profit for the company. And the thing that they did that was really smart mm-hmm. is they put that money back on the screen. So, like you mentioned earlier, you know they had experimented with certain. TV shows in the 80s and 90s, everything they'd made early on looked incredibly cheap. I mean, if you I mean, go Dream back on. and watch- Do you remember the show Dream On? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So cheap looking. Some you like know. the Larry Sanders show were kind of meant to look cheap. Yeah. And, and Larry Sanders holds up. It's still right. an incredible show, but it was done for very cheap. And it was a format. Those half hour comedies could be done pretty cheaply and pretty effectively, especially an office comedy that, you know, did not really require external shots. And then you no look s- at the obverse, which is a Game of Thrones, heavily CGI, heavy production, yeah. a total bet the ranch type thing. And this is really yeah. before, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine in a, in a past life, we're going to Blockbuster Hollywood video and be kind, rewind. And then the leap of faith to get you to stream this stuff over Wi-Fi with a little type, you know, cigarette box size streaming thing atop your mm-hmm. TV. Um, that it's all just going over the ether. And this is from an industry that had tremendous amount of consternation, as you pointed out in the book, with the, uh, you know, the ubiquity of of the VHS tape that was supposed to destroy everything. But they successfully navigated that. They did. And they were able to survive, I think, again, because they were pretty good at fending off you know, I think Jeff Bukas, when he was CEO of HBO and he led HBO through that period of time when the AOL Time Warner uh, merger was taking place, I think Jeff Bukas, the best thing he did for HBO during that time period was he said initially he was against the merger and he said to the AOL people, like, back off. Like, we know what we're doing. We're making a lot of money. We're making these great shows. We have a lot of momentum. Leave us alone. And he really fought to keep HBO independent. And that worked incredibly well during that period of time. I would say the flip thing that we learned when we were working on the book, which I didn't realize beforehand, is there was kind of a hangover that ended up hurting HBO and Time Warner from that, which is that I think the lesson that they all learned from the AOL experience was like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. These cyber visionaries are kind of phonies. You know, we know what we're doing. Like the internet is, you know, and we call it, I guess, internet PTSD in the book, that they were all kind of like so against it. And then that was fine during the AOL time period. But it turns out in that next period of time, which is like the mid 2000s, early 2010s, there was so much innovation taking place And their resistance to the internet really ended up hurting them because, and it opened the door for Netflix to make the leap into streaming. And also, you know, there was, we we recount an episode in the book where there was this group of executives uh, in the West Coast of HBO's offices in 2005, 2006, who saw what Netflix was doing. At that point, it was the you know, DVDs by mail that you ordered via website from Netflix. And they saw that and they said, this, these guys really understand how to use the internet. They're going forward. If we acquire Netflix now, it's going to really help us develop a relationship directly with customers. It's not going to cost us that much. It'll help us in this transition to the internet. They went to, you know, New York, uh, pitched the idea to Time Warner and HBO executives said, let's go out and buy this little small startup. 
And it got shot down immediately. And there was just like, no, forget it. We don't want to buy Netflix. There's, you know, that's just a flash in the pan. That's going to fall apart. And I really think that that is connected to that feeling left over from the AOL deal that, you know, that that bad taste that it left in the company's mouth. And as a result, um, because they didn't do things like acquire Netflix, because they were very hesitant about investing in the internet and streaming future, they really left the door open and made themselves vulnerable. H, you know, Netflix really dominated that space. And I think, you know, you go down the line five, six, seven more years. That's why Time Warner ended up being vulnerable and having to sell and ultimately having to sell to AT&T, which, you know, and hold that, hold that box. I'm going to get there. Yeah. Full disclosure: yeah. We're talking to Felix Gillette. He is co-author of the new book. It's not TV. The spectacular rise, revolution, and future of HBO. It dropped on November 1st. Felix is at Bloomberg. He co-authored it with John Koblen of the New York Times. This is the streaming winter, as we're calling this episode. And yes. I can't help but look back to that fateful second merger, as if you didn't learn the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. It's dated October 22, 2016, AT&T to acquire Time Warner for then hundred, about $108 a share. And this is the quote from AT&T's then chairman. This is a perfect match of two companies with complementary strengths who could bring a fresh approach to how the media and communications industry works for customers, content creators, distributors, and advertisers. It has been true on the big screen, the TV screen, and now it's proving true on the mobile screen. We'll have the world's best premium content with the networks to deliver it to every screen. A big customer pain point is paying for content once, but not being able to access it on any device anywhere. Our goal is to solve that. We intend to give customers unmatched choice, quality, value, and experiences that will define the future of media and communications. Fast forward five years uh, later, they spit this company out. It's a disastrous merger. James Stewart of the New York Times really wrote that, you know, kind of an oral history recently column of the various things that went wrong with these Texas Mm -hmm. telecom executives buying Hollywood and Manhattan media corridor type assets. Tens of billions of dollars of lost shareholder value. Felix, I can see Jeff Bukas and Warner and HBO wanting to sell after the PTSD of the AOL Time Warner debacle. And the great decade that they have, and Jeff Bukas wanted to retire. But I can't quite understand why, I mean, a phone company was convinced to overpay because what, they thought yeah. that this would be a killer app and they wouldn't lose subscribers if they included HBO on phone plans? Yeah, I think they thought that maybe there would be some synergy, again, very much like AOL. Oh, we'll control the pipes and we'll control you know programming. I think they also thought their share price would get a nice boost out of that. They thought they looked at Netflix and they thought, oh, well, the market loves streaming. If we own some streaming properties, we could also get that boost. You know, they thought it would help them hold on to customers. They thought, you know, all these ideas they had and first of all, everyone pretty much in the industry from the very beginning when this deal was announced was like, this is not going to work out, right? This is just, there's going to be like a huge culture I feel like we all clash. knew that, right? We all yes. have to hold our, our uh, we, <laughs> we have to be, we can't be subjective in this, but you knew it was yeah. a cultural mismatch. John Stanky, yeah. the now CEO of AT&T, if you ever dealt with these guys, they had a dividend to protect. They were worried about T-Mobile with Sprint and others. There were various other things in that business that didn't kind of lend themselves to the soft touch, as you illustrated in the book, giving content creators a long leash and a big budget. They kind of just came in and and he had these bizarre conferences with people. And you knew from the very outset that they're going to end up spitting this thing out for a fraction of what they paid for it. 
Yeah, and they also, I mean, they had really bad luck in Washington, D.C. also because, you know, the other thing that really screwed them over was that, uh, you know, 2016, they make the acquisition, they announce it, and immediately, this is during the presidential campaign, uh, you know, president, then uh, presidential candidate Trump comes out immediately and says, oh, this is terrible for consumers. This is just big media and big Yeah, tech Warner, and, Warner yeah. Brothers, after all, owns CNN. Yes. And so he had this grudge with CNN. Um, you know, they after Trump is elected, they put a lot of pressure on AT&T to try and spin out CNN or in some way get rid of Jeff Zucker, who, you know, Trump was having issues and beef with. And, you know, when that didn't happen, Department of Justice sues on antitrust grounds. The whole thing gets caught up in this regulatory mess and it draws out for years. AT&T has to, you know, go through this whole antitrust process. They end up winning. But during that time... They won, but they lost, as you illustrated in your book, because they lost all of this key strategic time. I mean, Netflix, which was growing every quarter, and it was growth at any price, as you illustrated Mm -hmm. in the book. And this really distracted them from the task of moving HBO from the cable box to truly a one HBO product. There was confusion over HBO Go, HBO Max. And even though they had this enviable library, you could get all those seasons of The Sopranos, uh, Succession was hitting its groove, clearly Sex in the City, Game of Thrones, The Wire, you name it, Deadwood, they were not able to monetize it or, or move as quickly as Netflix or even arguably Disney and Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Yeah, they were stuck in limbo and they got they were flat-footed at this incredibly pivotal moment for the industry when everything is racing into streaming. And by the time they finally get through the regulatory review, by the time they finally shoot down the antitrust case, they and they take control of the company, they're already behind. And then as they get ramp up to say, okay, we're going to create this streaming service that's going to take all of the content from across all these different properties that had been siloed. We're going to create one destination for consumers. It's going to be this Netflix rival. By the time they got around to that, you know, then they're starting to, to get ready. What are we going to name it? Then COVID hits. And, you know, that scrambles production. By the time HBO Max finally launches, you know, you look back at that launch, there was no Where was real, the big killer production? Yeah, there was no one big show. To that. Right. Like Disney Plus had the, you know, the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian they had, right. yeah, they had like Baby Yoda. Everyone's tweeting their little pictures of Baby Yoda. They love it. It's got tons of buzz. You got to check out Disney Plus, see the Baby Yoda. HBO Max had none of that. They were, you know, their big thing was they were going to have this friends reunion, um, but they couldn't end up doing that in time because of COVID. And, you know, in retrospect, you think, well, it would have been smart to have like, you know, the Game of Thrones prequel or Game of Thrones sequel, whatever it was. But they were too distracted between Dallas yeah. and New York and Los Angeles to figure this out. Yeah, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't put the money into it. They could not get everybody on the same page. And so they launched with very little buzz and very little to offer consumers that was fresh. And as a result, it really kind of stumbled out of the gate. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Felix Gillette. He's author of the book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and 
tell your aunt about us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Friendster. Heck, I'm sure you could find us there. The handle is Full D Radio. And holler if you too would like to broadcast us on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Felix Gillette, author of the new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. So many great nuggets, uh, so much innuendo gossip there. I, I had not realized to what extent, if HBO wasn't outright misogynistic, it was clearly, in hindsight, male-centric in its first 20, 25 years of evolution, what with boxing, raunchy comedy, late night you know, B-movies, and everything else. And so Sex and the City was a big bridge, was a big leap for them. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those buried secrets of HBO that we kind of uncovered, which was that it was really explicitly a network thought of and conceived of for men in its early days. And the reason for that was executives looked at the broadcast networks, the commercially sponsored networks and said, well, they're trying to reach women. They're trying to sell household products. So they kind of slant their programming towards women. We're going to do something differently. We're going to make a network for men, which is why we're going to have boxing, which is why we're going to have late night erotic documentaries. It's why we're going to have adult sitcoms that have tons of female nudity. And that really like was the prevailing idea and programming emphasis for HBO up until the mid nineties. And again, there was another moment where, bizarrely, it ended up being this original HBO movie called If These Walls Could Talk, which was a Demi Moore produced and uh, Demi Moore also starred in the movie. It was a movie about abortion and different decades of American life. And HBO ended up with the basically putting it on the air because of Demi Moore's star power, but they didn't really expect it to do very well because they're like, well, I don't think our male viewers are going to want to watch a movie about abortion. Turns out the movie ended up having huge ratings for them and a lot of buzz. And they were like, wait, maybe we should be thinking about female viewers too. I got to tell um, you, that still kills me. It's like a bunch of people at, at, at in Mad Men discussing this in the 1950s. But yeah. clearly with the hindsight we have of our contemporaries binging Sex in the City, or you see Re- mm-hmm. Reese Witherspoon staying power on the network. Gosh, you, you name it now, it's much more of an egalitarian network and it's not just the man controlling the remote control. So it's clearly evolved in the past 20 years. What I also tried to glean from this book is you know, HBO had the chance, as you mentioned, to take out Netflix when it was a much smaller company. It went on to have a spectacular decade of growth and stock market returns, but it also had to have its leap of faith moment where, hmm, do we self-disrupt the cash cow of DVDs to your home, maybe the four-month mm-hmm. a plan, and bifurcate the plan maybe to something streaming? There's nothing to say that the makers of the Walkman, Sony, would have invented the iPhone or iPod. And so Mm -hmm. I don't see why it was so likely that somebody who was burning DVDs and sending them out was going to go out and invent House of Cards or The Irishman. I mean, gosh, what did they spend on The Irishman? It was luxurious to watch that several Thanksgivings ago, but that that can't be an economic investment for anybody. No, and I think in many ways uh, it's interesting to look back when – Netflix made that transition because so much of what they did in those early days, they really borrowed from HBO's playbook. And one of the things we talk about in the book was, you know, HBO had this attitude that came about in the 2000s, which we call the HBO shrug, which was that they were making so much money at that point that they would really spend anything they wanted to on programming if they wanted it to drive other competitors out of the market. So it was like, you know, um, a series that was going to cost you know, $80 million like Band of Brothers and ends up costing $100 million, HBO would be kind of like, meh, 
That's fine. We'll spend $100 million. No one else can do it. And that was a great advantage for HBO for a long time. They could just outspend anybody. And then Netflix basically did to HBO what HBO was doing to everybody else, which was that at that point, you know, the paradigm of tech investing was like, you know, it doesn't matter. Your profits, we don't really care about. All we really care about is market growth and driving out the incumbents and taking market share. And so Netflix really used that to its advantage by going out and, you know, the example we give in the book, the first big example was House of Cards, which was a, you know, a series that HBO really wanted and was pursuing and, you know, had all the elements of a they, classic they kinda HBO wanted drama. to be incremental with pilot and everything and Netflix yeah, was able and they to, wanted be to do a pilot. Yeah, and, and Netflix went out and said, you know what, David Fincher, like we'll We'll give you $100 million to do two seasons. You don't have to make a pilot. You know, it was an unheard of amount of money. And I was skeptical not to interrupt you when I first saw it. You know, Kevin Spacey was in the firmament and everything. And it was premium. Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. And you wanted to, you you could, binging was a new feeling to me. I mean, I used to, if if a friend used to pirate Deadwood or something for me and give it to me on a burned DVD, that was the way to to see it in the the mid (laughs) aughts. But Netflix is like, here, have at it. Go watch. Yeah. Eight episodes at a time. Kill your tailbone if you want. And uh, that was new. And that was a tipping point moment that had to have aroused a lot of alarm across HBO, Disney, Bob Iger, the works. Yeah. Everybody was suddenly freaked out. I mean, they even went after Uncle Silvio Dante from The Sopranos. Nobody talks about Lillehammer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They did that. And, you know, and Orange is the New Black, which was, you know, a prison comedy was very a lot of echoes of oz which was you know hbo's one of hbo's first big dramas set in the prison and so they did and then if you just continue that on out um look what netflix did in stand-up comedy stand-up comedy was like a big part of hbo's dna forever and uh at a certain point netflix saw that they were able to outspend HBO and they said, you know what, we're going to go out and offer Chris Rock $20 million to do a single stand-up special for Netflix, the economics of which make no sense whatsoever. But Chris Rock had been the face of HBO comedy. That was a major trophy. I associated Chris Rock with HBO. Yeah, he'd been the face of HBO stand-up comedy for decades. And he went over to Netflix. And then from there, they basically bought up the entire stand-up comedy world. The things that you can see now. Well, Felix, in the few minutes we have left with you, I got to ask you about the the austerity now. I mean, it started with Netflix earlier in the year saying, we're not growing subscribers. They're all considering or implementing ad-based models. It's like we're going back to the cable dial and linear TV again. But there also seems to be this streak, even with Bob Iger and others, that we don't have to necessarily bet the ranch everything sucked in by the streaming app. We can afford to be mercenary again. We can afford to delay releases, have theatrical windows, maybe pawn some stuff off externally, kill some shows, uh, extend, you know, manage the decline of the linear business so that we're not just posting these outsized losses like you saw Disney largely on the heels of Disney Plus post a one and a half billion dollar loss quarterly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pendulum has definitely swung back in the other direction, whereas suddenly Wall Street has signaled, you know what? Like we care about more than just subscriber growth. We actually care about profits and loss. And so everyone is tightening their belts. Everyone is suddenly Netflix, HBO, 
across the board, everyone's saying, okay, we're not just going to spend endlessly on these streaming services. We're going to have to find ways to uh, generate other revenue. Do you, do you believe that Apple one. and Amazon are the exception, though? I mean, uh, Apple has a $2.5 trillion market cap, Amazon until recently yes. was a trillion, where this is used to drive you know, paper towel sales or Apple, the kind of the stickiness of the ecosystem. Uh, they're not going to be scrutinized like maybe the HBO of yesteryear under Time Warner for these outsized investments. Yeah, and it gives them an advantage because, you know, look at Amazon. They can go out and get Thursday night football. Uh, they can go out and make a Lord of the Rings show, The Rings of Power, which I think is the most expensive TV series ever made, you know, spend a billion dollars on that. Um, and it is going to be difficult for Warner Brothers Discovery and Netflix uh, to compete in certain areas now because, you know, look at their share prices. Their share prices are way down this year and they're under a lot of pressure to find, to spend less or find ways to, to increase their profitability, whether it's advertising or Netflix, you know, putting movies in theaters, finding some other way to generate revenue for these streaming services. And it's going to be difficult. It's a crazy time because it's also, you know, the, the market in the U.S. is largely saturated. There's not a huge amount. There's so so much competition among these streaming services domestically. It's going to be very difficult for anyone to pick up more subscribers, increase that revenue a lot. They're going to all raise their prices, but it's going to be hard. The real competition, I think, is now shifting overseas and uh, trying to pick up customers in Asia, and in Europe and across the world. And in that field, Netflix is so far ahead of the competition. They've spent, you know, a decade I mean, you now. look at the reverb from Korea with Squid Game, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, now that's a bona fide franchise and everybody's waiting with bated breath for the sequel. But I got to ask you about Warner Brothers Discovery, the yep. now uh, largely defanged <laughs> parrot spun off, spit out mm -hmm. by AT&T. It doesn't seem like a cultural marriage in heaven, David Zasloff. There's a lot of bean counting and cutting. They're worried about CNN. They're worried about sports franchise renewals. Yep. I get the feeling in my bones, like I did with AT&T Warner, that this isn't going to last, that somebody else like a Comcast or someone else is going to find HBO too irresistible and kind of come in and break this up from this latest iteration. What do you think? I think you're right. I mean, I think that if, especially the share price, which was what, $25 a share at the, you know, back That's in April now is $11. So, um, and I think you're right. Culturally, Discovery, you know, what they did well in the past was making these really cheap, uh, you know, kind of middle brow reality shows. Um, and it's very opposite of the model of what HBO does. They've never, Discovery and Zaslav have never really gone out and made these really high end, really expensive productions. They've had to make a lot of hard decisions initially. They've been killing projects. And I think that it's hard to see where this goes because, you know, we're in this kind of era of blockbuster streaming shows. So, you know, what's working now, you know, HBO had the House of the Dragon, incredibly expensive show, but very popular. Netflix had Sandman, you know, again, big blockbuster show based on a comic book. Um, or The Boys. You see these things that the don't boys? look cheap to make. Yeah. No, they don't. So it's that, that tension now is on the one hand, having to make these incredibly expensive products for your streaming service. On the other hand, share price down, um, you know, domestic market saturated, losses piling up. 
it's hard to see that as very sustainable. And particularly at Warner Brothers Discovery, it feels almost the least sustainable when you look out ahead. Felix Gillette, the book is It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO, hardcover that dropped on November 1st, co-authored with John Coblin. I'm going to break character and tell everybody that I love this book. It's one of my favorites this year. You very rarely get a corporate page-turner so rich with anecdotes and parenthetical asides and uh, you know, I, I just remember feeling so magical as a kid going to a friend's house and having HBO and hearing that theme music break. And now you see how to, you know, decades of that sausage was made. Uh, excellent book, sir. Please come back on the show. Thank you so much, Robin. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, if you were just joining us, we were talking to Felix Gillette, one of the co-authors of the new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. And of course, today, you can't talk about HBO without talking about streaming and the genesis of streaming. And the granddaddy of streaming was Netflix. Joining me in studio, I'm actually at the University of Richmond, is Professor Dr. Joel Meyer. He was Director of Marketing at Netflix at the turn of the century up until 2006. He's now a lecturer in marketing at the University of Richmond. He's advised various companies. Sir, um, how are you? Wonderful. Wonderful. Great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to have you in studio. I got to ask you, and I told you, I'm, I'm dating myself in that my then fiance, now wife and I, we thought it was so gee whiz that in 2005, we subscribed to the four DVD month plan from Netflix. And the first one we ever got was The Freshman. It was that movie with Matthew Broderick and Marlon Brando. And we thought it was so Jetsons that we were getting DVDs in the mail. This was about summer of 2005. No idea that Netflix would build up the market cap, the incredible run that it had in the aughts to go and self-disrupt the entire industry. You take it from that as kind of being a middleman of DVD mailers to things like House of Cards and The Irishman, a massively expensive production, and now the entire the entirety of Hollywood and existential angst about streaming. What is What are your first memories going back to the company in 99? Yeah, the uh, warmth, um, yeah. unbelievable experiences. You know, the thing that that was so interesting to me at the time was uh, I, I remember when the recruiter called about the position. The, they said, hey, these seasoned industry veterans, and they just want to do something fun, and they think they can disrupt some industries, and they want to ship DVDs by mail. And in 99, what we need to remember is DVD penetration was 0.2%. Mm. They cost about $1,500. So the only people that had <clears throat> DVD players were cinephiles. Furthermore, the internet, which we take for granted, was only in one quarter of all households. So to me, this was a huge gamble. Furthermore, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clearly date myself, my reaction to the concept was, wait, wait, that's a stupid idea. Because movie choosing is a social ex experience. You go to a store, you ask your wife, you ask the person standing next to you, hey, have you seen this? What do you think? And I'm clearly echoing the blockbuster model, right? That to me was movie watching. This idea of doing it remotely and not having that interaction, that's a, that's a stupid idea. Clearly, I was wrong. And clearly, I gave it some serious consideration and went there and had an unbelievable seven or eight years. But my initial thought was, this is a damn dumb idea. But that's the exciting part. Everyone else thought so too. And so it was our challenge to prove everybody wrong and to really change the way that consumers and then the industry thought about how can we consume entertainment in a way that really 
best meets my needs. Did they have that fiercely upper out culture when you joined where everybody's constantly being scrutinized? Listen, this isn't personal. This is a team. If we have to cut you, we'll pay you well, but you'll go off to other better things. Don't take it personally. So there was always an element of, hey, everybody's got to pitch in. We're a startup. Everybody does whatever has to be done, right? No BS. And so there was an element of, of that. But I think what you're referring to really came out of what we, what I called kind of Black Monday. And that was in a September of 01, we pulled the whole company together and we said that in able to be able to go public in May of 02, we need to cut costs. And on that day, we let go of 40 to 45% of the company. And you know, Was this cl- following 9-11? It was following right. 9-11. It was, absolutely. Um, and it was challenging and it was hard as, as any layoffs are, especially layoffs of that magnitude. But one of the unexpected consequences of that, you know, you've heard the expression, do more with less. Well, in general, you can't do more with less. That's, that's a stupid expression. But what happened at Netflix was that the people that were left, they ended up doing unbelievable, phenomenal things. And it was because, and this was the insight, if you have A plus people, which were those that were left, they can do the work of five A minus people. And so as a result of that, kind of emerged this beginning kind of cultural ethos of uh, top performer, high performer. And if you're not the absolute best in the world at your role, then we need to do better and you, there's not really a role for you here anymore, mm. right? And so that's because if you think about the revenue per employee that Netflix has compared to others, it's unbelievable because they hire brilliant people. They don't have bureaucracy getting in the way. They don't have BS rules getting in the way. And they allow folks to do their job. And that's worked out really well for 20 some odd years. Could anyone have looked into his or her crystal ball at the turn of the century and said cord cutting is going to progress the movie theater? I mean, the movie theater was a double-edged thing after 9-11 because I remember everyone in Manhattan, for example, talking about escapism. It could have been an opportunity for Netflix to send out a ton of DVDs to people if DVDs were penetrating higher. You start having the golden age of TV and HBO and The Sopranos and everybody talking about sex in the city and- uh, gosh, Oz and and other things, but you still had the linear TV model very much intact, and the various income streams coming in and preventing the incumbents, the likes of Disney, Universal, others from self disrupting. Because look, AOL Time Warner was a mega merger, and some people thought of it as a broadband play. You could get all of this great content from the Warner Brothers Studios on cable, fat cable pipes, and send them out everywhere. In theory, in practice, they never did that. Yeah. Yeah, you know it's it's an it's a great question, and I think so. Could someone have looked in a crystal ball? Yes. The question is, would we have listened to it? Right. In fact, I remember back in the early '90s, a series of streaming startups building the infrastructure, you know, coming up with some really creative things. And so, I think a reasonable prognosticator could say, yes, at some point in time, this is going to be disrupted. The question is, when and how? With the advent of the internet, and it gradually kind of. Uh, penetrating business and then homes, it became clear, wow, this could be a channel. And so one of the reasons Netflix was called Netflix, and Mark Randolph, the co-founder, often talks about this, is they knew, they th- this is how smart these guys were. They knew from day one that DVDs were old technology. I remember interviewing with Mark in July of 99. 
And I remember him saying to me as I'm sitting in his office and he has a volleyball and he's kind of setting it to himself. It's like yeah. one of the most unique interviews I've ever had in my life. Um, and and uh, he said to me in this interview, yeah, DVDs are already dead. We just don't know when. I mean, they didn't call it disc flicks. Right, exactly. They didn't call it DVD by mail. They didn't call it disc yeah. flicks. They called it Netflix because they knew this thing called the internet was going to enable eventually streaming. Now, when and how and what form, who freaking knew? But they knew it was going to happen and they wanted that flexibility. And so my point is they knew that in 98 when they started the company. So they were, I think, already thinking three, four, five steps ahead of everybody else. And here I have fast forward to my one of my memories from Business Week, the late Roger Ebert, legendary film critic. I mean, God bless his soul. I used to watch Siskel and Ebert growing I up. I met him once in Sundance. Oh, that's great. It was wonderful. He wrote a column in September of 2011, 10 years after this great reset moment. He said, Roger Ebert, why Netflix's price revamp was the right move? Uh, this was very controversial because they were self-disrupting the DVD business, which was going great, but they saw streaming as well ahead. He said, I'm quoting here from Roger Ebert. Three years ago, I was persuaded by my friend to purchase a Roku player, which would bring online movies to my big screen TV. It could be hooked up in five minutes. With my good cable internet connection via Netflix and Amazon.com, I could stream movies that came through bright and clear with quality rivaling HD. I could view a movie on impulse right now, no delay, and pause it all at will. I could move forward and backwards. I could keep it hanging around forever. I was a happy camper. Netflix was costing me about nine bucks a month. When the new price structure was announced, when they bifurcated DVD and streaming. What did that mean for me? Since I now never ordered DVDs by mail, it meant a savings of about a dollar a month. And yes, he says there were limitations. You had a limited library. There were things that you could get on DVD, you know, foreign movies and everything on Netflix that I was big into Argentine and Iranian mm. cinema that they didn't offer these things on streaming yet. But then they proceed to have the decade. I mean, one of the best performing stocks of the past decade was Netflix. And everybody wanted to follow suit, follow on with the pandemic. Suddenly, when movie theaters are shut down, Disney's theme park business is shut down. DVDs are a relic. Computers increasingly are not coming with DVD-ROM drives anymore. And moreover, Dr. Meyer, who would have imagined that we'd be streaming this stuff seamlessly over little you know, cigarette box size <laughs> things over our TVs, whether it's an Apple TV or a Roku. Right. I mean, just like I stream Spotify in the car over a data plan, I used to have a clanky, you know, cassette adapter. These were things that you could never take for granted looking into your crystal ball as recently as 15 years ago. And then, so I, I'm, I'm saying this in a long-winded way, the entire industry followed suit after the pandemic and said, we need to bet the ranch on streaming. There was Disney Plus, there was HBO Max, which we talked with Felix Gillette was mired in this terrible second disastrous merger with uh, AT&T. Right. There were the others, there were the you know Paramount Plus, there was AMC, which had Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead and other things. It's like, hey, look at me, look at me as well. Now you fast forward to us and we're calling this the winter of streaming in 2022. Everybody is trying to say, okay, not so fast. We right. can't just lose billions of dollars on this. Right. Where, what does the crystal ball say now? And that's a lot to ask, I know. It, it is amazing to think about all of the, the changes that have occurred. And it's fascinating to me to watch not only the incumbents, right? And even to think about Netflix as the incumbent, right? They were the challenger. They were taking on the industry 800-pound gorilla, and now, in a sense, they, they, they have become that, which is really interesting for me to think about. But what's really fascinating is watching, to your point, that litany of content providers all with their streaming services or their bundles or their partnership with Apple or Amazon Prime, 
And in essence, we're kind of transferring the cable linear relationship to now a bundle of streaming with with login fatigue with I login mean, fatigue Hulu, which is owned nominally by disney exactly right Comcast, if you want a multi-home right you have kids that want disney plus you have to have hbo max for the soprano lovers in your family or yep. for game of thrones or for white lotus right for now lotus, right gotta right. have that yeah so yeah no it's we, we, we say nothing of apple tv and amazon this is where and I think that uh, you know, to use another metaphor, this is a this is kind of unequal warfare. If you look at the budgets of an Amazon, which would have been also risible when you guys were looking at Amazon, and right. Amazon looked at you looked back at, at the turn of the century, right. right? For them to have had such outsize, if you not say profitability, but a pass from Wall Street to go and buy things like Whole Foods for fourteen billion in cash, nobody cares, right? Right. So nobody seems to care if he's going to buy Thursday night football Amazon or if he's right. going to spend all this money on that series, The Boys. It's a it's a customer acquisition mechanism. Right. He gets a pass. Apple, which has a $2.5 trillion market cap, gets a pass. But isn't it interesting, just this week, the new CEO, the returning CEO of Disney, actually told all employees, hey, we're focused on profitability going forward. We're not focused on uh, growth and acquisition. Unpack that for me. How do you focus on profitability? So do you become mercenary again and say, you know what? We're okay selling some things to Netflix if we're Disney. We don't have to ring fence it again and keep all the content proprietary to us. If it's yeah. profitable for us to sell it to them or to license with someone out internationally, sure. to increase our runway, to to manage the decline of the traditional businesses. So if you think about the inventory, the product they have, right? You know, after the Fox buyout and the content of the the Fox library. Yeah, Disney like, bought out Fox's TV uh, motion picture studio, paid $70 billion and has a lot of debt because of it. No, it's, it's enormous. So think about all the content they have. Think about Hollywood pictures. Think about uh, Weinstein Brothers. Like the content Disney has is unbelievable. Now, think about the platforms they have to stream it. You don't see that stuff on Disney+. Plus. So to me, what's fascinating is the if we're not going after acquisition and subscriber growth, and that means they're not spending money to bring in new people. So the focus on profitability means to get more revenue for the assets they already have and to get more profitability and more revenue from the customers they already have. And so to your point, do they take that content and license it globally, country by country, because everything's on a country level basis? Um, that's reasonable. Do they think about, which I think would be a, a, a challenging yet exciting sure. brand play, yeah. would be do they think about Disney Plus differently? Do they add, uh, I don't want to say adult because that has bad connotations, but do they have a non-family friendly, even that sounds bad. Isn't that what Hulu is supposed to be though? Which they're on the brink of apparently consolidating control of. I mean, it seems like one of the it does great, it has great content, but it it's kind of marginally understood by consumers. Most people wouldn't realize that Disney and ABC have content running on it. You can get certain things on it that right. go to other places. Right, right. Whereas no, it's Disney, kind of a clearinghouse. You, know, you know Mandalorian, you know uh Beauty and the Beast and all these various things. No, absolutely. I, I I think that might be the way they're thinking about it, but I'm not sure. In other words, there's the internal strategy PowerPoint pitch deck, and I'm sure that's there. Then there's the market reality. And you and I and, and our friends and family, they don't think of it that way, right? They don't think uh to your point that Disney owns Hulu, Disney owns ESPN, ESPN Plus, Disney owns ABC. Like they don't we don't normally think of it that way. Shareholders, stockholders do, but consumers don't. And so, you know, so it might be interesting to see what they do with Hulu once they get full control. It might be interesting to see what they do if they do anything with Disney Plus. I, I doubt it. I doubt they would risk that, right? Because of, of the wholesome family brand that they've had for 
you know, 70 years. But um, but I do think, to your point, if they're going to focus on profitability, they need to really make good use of those assets because to your, they, they did spend so damn much on that. Full disclosure, listening to Dr. Joel Meyer. He's a lecturer in marketing at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business. In a past life from 1999 to 2006, he was director of marketing at a little startup called Netflix. And we're fast forwarding that to Netflix being an incumbent. I mean, the business model that ate all of Hollywood. If you're listening to us on radio, we unfortunately have to taper uh, to make 52 minutes, but we'll run an extended version of this interview on podcasts wherever you get your pods. Uh, Dr. Meyer, willingness to pay. Right, this is something that's bandied about by many business school professors. You have to kind of right size the audience. When Disney Plus came out, when Netflix came out, it was very affordable. And you hear these executives behind the scenes say, "We need to boil the frog slowly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get the money around, make the product indispensable and sticky, and then push through price hikes." And well, you know, once a year, you're looking at your credit card statement. Are my kids going to forgive me if I get rid of Disney Plus when another blockbuster is coming down the pipeline? This is a real problem right now because the industry describes churn as being brutal. You can go in and binge whatever's new. The new season of White Lotus, for example, right right now is keeping HBO Max afloat. I'm really holding on to my Netflix login, uh, waiting for AMC's Better Call Saul's final season to port over there because I don't want to pay for a separate AMC login or buy it a la carte on Amazon. It's really confusing. So this is problematic because customer acquisition costs are huge. Churn is expensive and you you don't want people out there just shutting it on and off. Generally, you're right. You don't. You absolutely don't. And I think you know you you point in a, in a really interesting scenario with AMC and kind of Better Call Saul. You can go buy it here. You can go rent it here. You can you know it, it's conf- is that what the DVD would have been until with, recently? That would have been right. The the leveling of the play oh, field would have been the DVD. Right. You buy it at Best Buy. You rent it from Netflix. That that's what it would have been right 15 years ago. Now in this kind of evolution that we're living through, now it's a little bit confusing because your exact scenario is one that I have friends who have verbalized the same thing on the same show, right? I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And, you know, with all of the options that are available today, the idea of not having immediate access is ridiculous, right? right? Or or one could argue and hear me say this and go, yeah, we'll just go buy AMC streaming. Well, I don't want another streaming service. I don't want another streaming service, but the interesting bridge is uh, you can go on iTunes, if they still call it iTunes, right? (laughs) You can go on Amazon and buy episodes, right? right? Own them for a week or so and binge right then and there. And so that is kind of the replica of what the DVD might have been, the bridge revenue before full release to Netflix and the others. Right. And that's still frustrating to me because people were talking about Better Call Saul when it ended several months ago. And I I am very much invested in the Breaking Bad franchise. I think they ran Camino Real or something right, on Netflix. Right, right. And I want to go back and see the full prequel and everything. But again, I don't want to I don't want to spend on the intervening stuff. I already have significant login fatigue. I think if I'm already paying for Netflix, Guys, give it to me already, and no one is going to go out and buy, you know, multi-homing issues with AMC. No, no, or Paramount no. Plus or the various other right. I tiny think consumers, players. without a doubt, consumers are going to uh, are exhausted of the oh free trial. Let's log in, binge this on Showtime, and then you know, I remember we we literally did that. We signed up for Showtime for a free month and put it on the calendar. Cancel by this date, and we watched the whole show through. <laughs> but again, I don't want to have to manage my damn calendar. Yeah. So I, I think in time, all this is going to shake out. To your point about pricing, though, right? Let's go back to Disney CEO on profitability, right? 
the way to make more revenue off of your existing customer base is to have kind of lower lower content costs, right? Same revenue or increase revenue. And so I, I think this idea of every year increasing it a little bit, I, I think we probably are going to see that for a while, right? I think we're going to see that for a while because this competitive nature that exists, it's going to be fierce and to and the differentiator is content, right? And so if we talk about Disney and kind of that rich back catalog, let, let's look at the other side. Let's look at not what has already been made in catalogs that are, that are already owned, but new content. And so one of the things, tying back to Netflix and the uh, creative destruction, the constant evolution of one's business model and offerings, one of the things that Netflix has done for the past few years, and I don't, I, you can educate me here, I don't think anyone else is doing this. They're creating content in more than 40 different countries, local writers, local actors, right? So if you think about shows that you might have seen, forgive me for those of you uh, who speak French, was it Lupin, mm-hmm. right? I, I think I, about Squid Game. I think about Squid Game, right? In Mexico, an unbelievable show called uh, Club de Cuervo about a soccer team, a totally fictitious soccer team. The logo for that team became the best-selling soccer shirt in Mexico. Wow. Right? So so this idea of creating local content, which, by the way, costs less, and then using that not only to penetrate the country, but then to create a global demand, that's – no one else is really doing that. And so I have to take my hats off to my my former colleagues and friends because I think that has given them a very cost-effective way to grow internationally, which is where the growth is going to come from for them, and create content at a lower cost, which, you know, one in 10 hits over here. That's a, that's a home run. One mm-hmm. in 20, that's a home run. And so um, I, I think that's a very interesting model that I wouldn't be surprised if others eventually follow. But you know, this and this isn't new. Netflix has been doing this for several years. I got to ask you, uh, where were you when you first saw the first season of House of Cards? And then fast forward <laughs> from that, The Irishman. Both things where I had to really squint and say, "Wow, is this Netflix? This is a this is an elite feeling." I feel like I can watch this in my bathrobe yeah. over. I think it was Thanksgiving, twenty nineteen. You know, Scorsese, Pacino, De Niro. Who knows what they spent on that? You asked me earlier, like, could you have ever imagined? I couldn't have imagined in 99 walking into Mark Randolph's office while he's setting a volleyball to himself and thinking about uh, the Irishman and Scorsese. Like, who would have? No one had those ideas, right? No one knew that was the future. And so that's the exciting part. But yeah, it's, it's, it's astounding. I probably catch myself four or five times a year where I'll just go, look at what they're doing. It's just. I'm so proud to have been such a small part in the early days and to see what they've accomplished and how they have forced industries to change, right? One of the things that, um, that that's so fascinating to think about in this, this streaming discussion that we're having is there's a wonderful little documentary on Amazon Prime. I think it's for free for those of you who subscribe called Netflix versus the world. And the opening scene is of a, uh, a a demo. It's a video of a demo of logging onto a cable company, going to a Blockbuster app, <laughs> and then picking a movie and streaming it. 
And that video was from 97 or 98. Wow. So if you think about- Blockbuster. Right, Blockbuster. They had the keys to the kingdom. They had half of all U.S. households in their database. And they were so beholden to current structures that they couldn't see the future, despite the fact it was right in front of them. And your ears are burning about this because Morning Brew quoted this week, uh, at Blockbuster Video's peak, the movie rental chain had 9,000 stores and raked in $6 billion in annual revenue. In the late 90s, when you joined Netflix, Blockbuster passed on the chance to buy Netflix for $50 million, a company now worth over $120 billion. I think it was worth twice that at its peak. Yeah, just a and, uh, yeah, Blockbuster is now a footnote in history. It's kind of in the dustbin Blockbuster is now a sitcom on Netflix as right. a TV show. But I think right? I saw the writing on the wall when Tony Soprano was furious that AJ got a job at Blockbuster. He's like, anybody can work, any Reese's right, Funk right, or something right, can right, work right, at Blockbuster. Right, right. So um, I, let me ask you, let me throw a curveball yeah. here specifically Uh-oh. in sports. Yeah. This is kind of the last bastion of advertising raking in linear TV. And you've seen Amazon go into sports, Thursday night football, other areas. Uh could you potentially see a Netflix or HBO going more into live sports because there's an advertising opportunity there and there's that perishability of the content. It's not as fungible and you can just kick it around anywhere. It must be seen right yeah. right then and there. Yeah. So um, I- I'm going to have to say, yes, I can see it. And let me explain why I say that. I don't have anything behind it whatsoever. But one of the things I've learned in the last year is with Netflix to never say never. And the reason I say that is there are two things Netflix has done that if you look historically, they have said they'll never do. One, they'll do advertising. We'll never do advertising. Well, they are. And two, they talked about not cracking down on password sharing. And they've been running experiments in South and Latin America, and those experiments will soon be rolled out around the world in time. And so, you know, we can say we're never going to do these things, but I don't think there's value in that. So could I see that? I, I can see it. I think it'd be confusing. But I, again, we say that with today's perspective. Fast forward a year or two, five years, the world will be different. And maybe it makes total sense then, right? But it's certainly not their core competency. I mean, they've they've dabbled with a daily talk show, right? Live daily talk show. So they've begun to dabble with it a little bit, but it's not one of the things that I give Netflix amazing credit for is they know what they're really good at. They know what their core competencies are and they generally stay in those lanes. If they do expand into something new, it's only after a ton of learning, hmm. right? One of the things people don't often remember is streaming started in Netflix in 07 or 08. And it was initially when you signed up for your four DVDs, your freshman, right? That they also had, if you were on a Windows PC (laughs) using Microsoft Silverlight technology, (laughs) you could also stream this catalog of really crappy content. And they said the content's not good, but it was part of the free package. And part of the brilliance of that move was that it gave them years of laboratory experiments. Practice and insight. Practicing, what do you watch? What's the quality? How long, you know, all the things, all the metrics. How does it impact DVD rental, right? And so um, for free, they got to learn on your dime. And not even for free because you were paying a monthly subscription to get your four DVDs at a time. So between 07, 08 and 11, July of 11, when they made that split that you referred to earlier, they had years of practice. They knew what consumption would be like. They knew what the usage was going to be like because over those years, the content got better, got better, got better. And when they finally realized, hey, you know what? Our future 
is streaming. That's when they made that decision to split. Dr. Meyer, how can somebody like a Comcast, the cable town, the largest cable company, afford to feel kind of agnostic about this? We're really we're bothered by cord cutting and the fact that you're killing the $180 a month all-in package and quadruple play and telephony and voice and all this. But we can also see a business model where you pay us $50 just for Wi-Fi to be a dumb pipe. How can they be cool with that? Because there was friction in the House of Cards era. Do you remember with Verizon and Comcast saying that we're suddenly seeing huge drawdowns of bandwidth and we have to throttle people? Right. So how can they just be on the sidelines? Comcast does own NBC Universal and Peacock. Peacock is by no means one of the major players in streaming right now. It could theoretically go out and buy HBO Max or sure. others. But this has been done before with AOL Time Warner and Time Warner Cable and all of that other stuff. So do you know what I'm saying? This is this is very vexing to me because I go in and out of circles. What has transpired over the past 25 years is whiplashing in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you. I would not, uh, I would not feel confident, right, being in that kind of role, that kind of industry. So, uh, yeah, if if I had the answer, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here, right? Uh, but, but it is, it is challenging. It is challenging because this trend that we're seeing. As we've seen in the in uh, telephony, right? How many of us have landlines anymore? Right, yeah. gone. Yeah, cable, right? Cable will, as we grew up with it, right? And by the way, we, we grew up with rabbit ears. We grew yeah. up with oh, over the air streaming, and then uh, and then cable, and now we're watching the demise of it. So the cable cutting is only going to increase, and going to so linear TV is going to be replaced by this bundle of streaming that we've talked about. Um, what is it they can do? Man, I, it's a great question. I don't know. Then they I, close us out. This is freestyle for you. What should I have been asking you? What do you think is, is not being monitored out there? If you're throwing a lecture on this for your students, yeah. none of whom subscribe to cable, incidentally, <laughs> these 20-year-olds, what, what would you be asking right now? What would you be researching? Probably none of them subscribe to streaming services either. They're sharing passwords, wow. right? Yeah. Uh, honestly. You know, what I would be, what I think is most interesting about this discussion is how does a group of people with no experience in an industry, zero, how do they totally disrupt not only home entertainment, but the creation of entertainment, the distribution of entertainment? How does that happen? And how does that happen, not just once, oh, you got lucky. How does it happen over decades by the same group of people? And you mentioned culture earlier, and I think that's kind of the, the key to this, uh, the answer. So to me, what I would take away from all this is industries and companies develop tendencies and norms, and they're very, very hard to challenge. It's called dominant logic, right? What's the dominant logic of the video rental industry? Oh, you have late fees, you have three days to get it back, and if you don't, I'm going to ding you. Yeah, there's no way around it. No way around Be it. Be kind right. and rewind. Can't challenge. <laughs> <laughs> you can't challenge that. And Netflix said, you know what? I, th I think you can if you do this and do this and do this. But imagine if someone had gone, you, you mentioned numbers about Blockbuster a few minutes ago, Robin. Imagine if somebody went to the top floor of the Blockbuster boardroom in Dallas, Texas and said, you know what? 20% of our revenues came uh, from late fees. I, I think, and you know what? No one likes us. No one likes us. The brand tracking data suggested customers don't like Blockbuster. Why? Late fees and due dates. Well, so what if we got rid of it? What do you think that person, how would they have been viewed in the boardroom? And the answer is they would have been laughed out or thrown out or fired. Well, okay. Well, they didn't listen to that. And where are they today? Oh, yeah. The chapter 11, they're gone. Yeah. And so uh, this idea 
of not challenging industry or company norms is what kills companies. And so I think the big lesson is you perpetually have to challenge not just the norms of the industry, but the norms of your company, right, over and over and over again. What companies generally do is they find a solution like, oh, here's a solution, here's a product, here's a service. And then over time, they tinker it. They make it better. They make it iteratively better because now my business is this solution, not what's the next thing, what's the next thing. And so I'm worried about the color of buttons and I'm worried about you know, uh, how do I get costs down? I'm not worried about the next big thing. And Netflix from its very beginning, back to even the naming of the company, Netflix was worried about 10, 20 years down the line, not the next day, not the next quarter. And they operated that way and they institutionalized that. So for me, the big takeaway is constantly be challenging. And whenever you feel, what I tell my students in, in kind of innovation discussions is whenever you go through your day and you see pain, you feel pain, like that was an inconvenience or that sucked. That's an opportunity, right? Whatever that could be. That I didn't like the way I was treated or I didn't like the way that product worked or that's awkward in my hand. That's an opportunity, right? Whatever that is. Dr. Joel Meyer, managing partner of the Meyer Practice, lecturer in marketing at the University of Richmond in a past life between 1999 and 2006, director of marketing at Netflix, which ended up eating the entire business model of Hollywood. Sir, it was a joy to finally have you back on and I sure hope you come back on. Anytime. The joy is all mine. And thank you for your time today. Full disclosure, reminder that you can hear this entire episode on podcast anywhere you get your pods on NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Shout out to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio, across the great Commonwealth. You can catch us on Low Power Radio in Ventura, California, down in Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you too would like us on your air. And of course, you can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for binging us. Back with you next week.